explore the night skies with our large range of high-quality telescopes. Whether you're a novice or an astronomy expert, we have the right telescope for you in our Australian Geographic e-store. Explore the whole range and find the right telescope for you today. Go to www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash shop. That's www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash shop. Hi, I'm Angela Heathcote and this is Talking Australia. Today, I'm speaking with Camilleroy water scientist Bradley Mogridge. Bradley is determined to integrate Indigenous knowledge of water with Western sciences to better understand and manage Australia's precious water sources. Bradley's outspoken about the many ways Australia's water has been mismanaged over the years, but has spent much of his life working on solutions. So I'm really excited to be chatting to him today on this episode of Talking Australia. Bradley, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. Now, when it comes to studying water, tell me where your story began. Well, it was about 65,000 years ago. Oh, no, sorry. (laughs) Um, Oh, look, I drank it from a young age. I swam in it. I loved it. And I think the water, passion for water was more about a a passion for protecting water and protecting the stories that connect to that those water places. So, being uh, science trained, but you know, have, obviously having Camilleroy, which is northwest New South Wales heritage, um, really connected to me to country, but also water. And in in Camilleroy language, it's Gali, G A L I, and um, I found that where my country sits in the Australian landscape is. You know, he's round the bottom end of the the Great Artesian Basin. You know, one of the potentially one of the largest aquifers, and you know, some of the water in that is, you know, our old people called it, you know, ancient water, old water, and you know, I think they had an inkling that it was old water, but you know, the, I think they've done some studies on on isotopes, and it's around two million years old. You know, from recharge to discharge at the bottom end, and you know, so that that wow. sort of place. That, those sort of water places, you know, those natural springs, you know, in, in my country, you know, you puncture a hole in the ground in certain parts and, you know, you'll have a bore that will just keeps pumping out hot water. Um, that's sort of like it's it's on tap. And um, I think that got to the point where our, our people knew it was, was important, but when obviously things changed as the frontier moved across the landscape, you know, they were just puncturing holes everywhere and water was just flowing in, in open drains and, you know, then springs started to, to lose uh, their hydraulic head, which is, you know, their, 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 their source and their, their, let's say, their, their flow, their flow rates. And, you know, that, that was affecting Camilleroy people. So I went down a path of, science from school and you know I think it started probably let's say with the ducks of geology at the high school in the HSC my school and in the late 80s and moved to science straight out of school and then I was doing geology which didn't really connect I connected with I love learning about the earth that really excited me and some of the 
the things you see, you, you learn in theory and then you see it in the field is really cool. I read in your Guardian article that you changed from geology to environmental science at university when undertaking exploration for uranium on someone else's country and in a national park, which you said proved a moral dilemma. Was that a big turning point for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was doing a Bachelor of Science at UTS and looking for uranium in a national park on someone else's country in the Western Desert. And I just come home and said, that doesn't feel right. And that was that was the switch to environmental science. So I think it was probably the right decision at the right time. Um, I, I don't think I could have gone down that career pathway, um, but more about thinking about what I, where, where I could have my impact best. And I think environmental science was a good choice. And that change led me down this new pathway and, you know, working after doing the uh, Bachelor of Science, Environmental Science of in local government, New South Wales EPA or Environmental Protection Authority, and then moved, then decided to do a master's in groundwater because I knew groundwater was important. So that's hyd well, hydrogeology is the, is the, I suppose, is the professional name, but it's, you know, it's a study of, of water under the ground. And, you know, we were a, a small, but um, I suppose connected society, you know, very specialised. And I think the connection Aboriginal people have with groundwater is, is pretty much unexplored. And, you know, part of my master's thesis was looking at that, that relationship. So, you know, that, that really, and when you were exploring that, what did you sort of well, find? Well, I found that Aboriginal people and groundwater weren't, wasn't a, a thing. You know, it, was, it, was, it wasn't in any literature. You know, there's a few stories here and there that I found. There was only sort of regional studies happening. There was no national study per se because I was in New South Wales at the time. I was, was studying in New South Wales. I was, I was looking at a New South Wales picture and, yeah, there was, there was nothing really to, to identify Aboriginal people's relationship with water and and that in a in a regulated system now that they have in New South New South Wales where water is a commodity the the aspect of Aboriginal people's ownership of groundwater was very limited also and because the, there's no there's no identifier in licensing of those of those water of water ownership so you know you you probably had to Back in the day, you would have had to get a, an approval, and then there's obviously privacy issues because there's these are people's um, names as, as part of that. So it wasn't hard. So I started a, a national picture and and looking at studies that have been done around the place, and and looking back at uh, you know some of the early early accounts from missionaries and surveyors and explorers and frontier people that were were engaging with uh, sometimes nicely. Um, with with Aboriginal people across the landscapes, and you know some of their observations, and you know I think Bruce Pascoe has brought out a lot of a lot of those observations as well um, in his Dark Emu book, and it was really along those lines of looking at what relationship Aboriginal people have with groundwater. And you know when you have a continent that is the driest inhabited continent on Earth, uh, you've got seventy percent, you know, semi-arid. Uh, you've got some really tough places on the lens in in the landscape and knowledge of water was the key to survival and you know these these people that um that lived in some of the harshest places on earth had to know when and where to find water uh to to survive and you know that then that as you as i delve deeper you know it, it comes even more clearer that their relationship was was crucial 
um, I suppose, and the knowledge of, of their country and the stories, uh, the Dreamtime stories, the, the laws that they put in place to protect these water places, you know, natural springs in a, in a desert environment is, is a priority to protect. And to know that if you, if you go to that place, uh, water could be found. And some of the things I found was, you know, the using natural indicators to identify groundwater sources um, in, in cave systems or, or springs or, or shallow aquifers. Um, you might have a, a huge stand of in, uh, eucalyptus trees in the middle of nowhere and, you know, potentially if you, you dug a bit, you could, you could actually find a shallow aquifer because those trees are accessing that groundwater. Or, or there was a, in the 60s, I found a, an anthropologist had been engaging with uh, the Pintubi mob and in central Australia, and what they'd found was the old man, one of the old men that the, the anthropologist was engaging with and learning his language and, and, and some of them, you know, they, they'd built a relationship. And what he, at the end of their time, I think it was 1964 from memory, and what, what he'd found, what, he'd, what the old man gave him was a, a spear throw, which is a, a long sort of um, propulsion mechanism for throwing the spear straighter and faster and harder. And on the back, he'd carved 50-odd concentric circles. And every concentric circle had a traditional name and those traditional names linked to that place. And what it was, this old man had given him like a GIS layer of all the waterholes in this man's country, which is desert. And so, you know, that, that sort of knowledge existed for survival. And, you know, that was really, really exciting to... And I suppose what I've been trying to do over, you know, that was early 2000s when I, I produced that thesis. And from then, you know, it's, it's, it's all about celebrating that knowledge of, of what Aboriginal people can offer in the water space because, you know, as I said, it's a dry continent and people have survived for tens of thousands, you know, 65,000 years, maybe longer. Um, and, you know, the, the, all the stories, the Dreamtime stories suggest time immemorial. And I think that's... Um, that's the exciting bit is that we have something to offer in the way we manage water. And, you know, that's been my, I suppose, my, my fight for the last 20 odd years to, to raise the profile of Indigenous knowledge on water, but also celebrate that knowledge in a way that can actually influence the way we manage, manage water. And as a water scientist and a Camilleroy man, obviously you're you're very determined to integrate inter, integrate that indigenous knowledge with, um, you know, uh, hydrogeology sciences. I'm wondering what does that look like to you integrating those two things? Oh, it, it's it's baby steps at the moment. The challenge is, is that, as I sort of mentioned before, that Aboriginal knowledge of water is not celebrated. It's not normalized it's not part of the curricula and I suppose that that's the other challenge is is, is bringing that knowledge into into the curricula and making it normal you know like my my eldest he's uh, my son he's in year 11 and he has to do Aboriginal studies as an elective it's not core learning um, my daughter's in year seven and you know yeah. like um, you know I'd love to, you know, that Aboriginal studies is a, is a subject, you know, that they can actually do, you know, it's part of the core curricula. And I think it's starting at that, those young ages and, and even in primary school, you know, my, my wife's in early childhood and, you know, she does what she can to, to, to bring in that, you know, bringing elders, but also teaching some of those um, stories that are 
thousands of years of observations of one's country and testing that environment, you know, it, it, that knowledge is a science. It's not, and I suppose it, it's flipping, it's flipping the, uh, flipping, I don't know, let's say the paradigm from storytellers and mumbo jumbo and myth and legend and folklore to a set of knowledge that can actually be meaningful to, to, to manage country because the last 200 odd years, Australia in its context hasn't managed country that well. Um, you know, we've, we've seen droughts after drought, you know, they, they, these last two big droughts we've had in the last 20 years. You know, they talk about a drought every 40 years. We've had two massive droughts, worst on record, let's say, that's been reported. The millennium drought and the last mega drought created, you know, severe issues. And I suppose the way we manage water was really exposed when we had those massive fish kills in the Lower Darling, two, two, two of them. Um, and then you had two independent scientific bodies review why those massive fish kills happened and not one Indigenous person was a member of those panels. Um, and I suppose that's the thing that the, the, the cultural shift of science needs to, to evolve as well. And, you know, like we don't have any Indigenous people as members of the or fellows of the Academy of Science or fellows of the Australian Technology Science and Engineering Academy, you know. So we do have Indigenous members of the Academy of Social Science um, but, you know, I suppose for the for the hardcore science, yeah, we don't have any Indigenous people, but, you know, one day Indigenous knowledge would be taught in schools, it'd be normal, you know what I mean? Like the way Maori knowledge and language is taught in New Zealand, you know, that, that's something to, to strive for. You know, they, they do it well. Non-Maori non, non people know Maori language, you know. I, I suppose they're lucky in a way, but they only have... They only have, um, you know, they have a similar language, a dialect that that everyone can learn. Whereas Australia, we have that diversity of two hundred and fifty plus languages that are all different in their in the way they're spoken and meaning. So that would be a challenge, you know. But it, I'm on Ngunnawal country in Canberra here, and you know, if my kids learnt Ngunnawal, that'd be a great thing. But I'd love them to learn Kamilaroi language, which is um, a challenge because you know we're about nine hundred k's away from country at the moment, but you know, I think Indigenous knowledge would be centre, front and centre. It wouldn't be an elective. Um, and then the challenge would be also to indigenize the university curriculum, you know, that Indigenous knowledge and methodologies are throughout are throughout that as well. Um, you know, that, that's, that's a way to go for the, the university sector. Um, and I think if that is, is a future, then I think that would be a good future because that people would be equipped with some of the oldest knowledge on the planet. Um, and I, I think that's cool. And I just want to go back to something you mentioned. Obviously, the Murray-Darling fish kills um, was kind of like one of the biggest stories um, from the past three years. Um, and it's a big mismanagement story as well. Um, but I'm wondering, how did you feel when those fish kills started occurring? Some parts of me sort of said, see, I told you. <laughs> but... Some part of me was crushed, you know, like when you think about those, some of those fish, like the, the gudu in our language is the, the Murray cod, um, thage is the, the yellow belly or the, the um, and, or callop or, or um, and 
some of those fish are people's totems. They have a direct connection to that species to protect that species. And to see those fish floating belly up would have been heartbreaking for those people. But then you also think beyond that that connection, that's, you know, that that human to species connection, but you've also got the, the, the spiritual connection to those those fish where, you know, Pondy down further south in that Nigeria country is a is a is a creation spirit, you know. So there's there's really strong connection to these fish species, but also you know that they are a food source. You know that if you take away that food source, then the, then the mob are going to go and buy flake from the fish and chip shops or hake or whatever it's called, flake. I think it's called, isn't it? You know, which is which is not 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 what they're used to. You know, and the kids then can't go catch fish, um, you know, they might start playing up because they, they don't have that outlet to go and catch fish for the family or for uncles and aunties. And, you know, so I suppose the, the connection Aboriginal people have with those species that were that were floating was, is you know, is, is multi-tiered, but it also exposed how we are not engaged in this space. And, you know, after that, there was... The, the the federal government threw some money at, at, a, at a review of native fish recovery and you know there was a there was a, a number of um, panels brought up and I was lucky to sit on the scientific part of the, the the native fish recovery strategy and you know that's I think that's being considered by um, ministerial council this week so you know there's Indigenous voice is strongly in that because there was a cultural advisory group set up as well as part of that. So, but the challenge was that Indigenous people weren't seen as experts when these two independent scientific committees were part of it. And you know, you read Uncle Badger Bates' submission to the Royal uh, the, the Royal Commission, South Australian Royal Commission into the Murray Darling Basin. You know he he provides a lot of scientific evidence which is based in, in Aboriginal law and knowledge. Uh, but he would be seen as a storyteller, and that—that's—that's that's the thing that needs to change, to to the to our our path to impact to better manage country. I believe. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just thirty dollars and save thirty three percent on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award winning magazine delivered to your home for just thirty dollars. Plus, you will also receive exclusive benefits, including 10% off all products purchased in our e-store. So don't wait. Go to www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia for our special offer. That's www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. In 2017, you published a paper that basically talked about Indigenous water policy and the impacts of the political cycle. What did that analysis kind of find and how does that lead into conversations around the management of the Murray-Darling Basin? Yeah, look, I had two uncles that were in Aboriginal affairs a long time and they've been our past now, but, you know, they always said governments will come and go and government ideas will impact you and those cycles of government will change and even though you might have the best process, the best product, the best output, if a government or leadership changes, they will change it to suit them. And unfortunately, a lot of Aboriginal programs come and go because purely because of that. You know, the funding is stopped. A new government comes in, they cut that funding because it was a previous government's funded funded process. And or there's a new leadership. You know, I 
you know, I was, I was, I've been directly impacted a number of times. You know, it, it could be a restructure. Um, I do that in inverted commas, and because what a restructure does is, is really gets rid of a lot of people. That's all it does, um, and it, and it comes as a as a cost saving. And I think the challenge I found was that you know you had to be resilient enough if a, a change happened that you were well equipped to be, um, let's say educated enough or experienced enough to be to be successful in the in the you know the job market if that does come around you know so I've I've had two dream jobs in my career one was with a the national scientific body and the drought broke in early you know the the millennium drought broke in 2010 11 and I suppose there was no need for water researchers anymore and I was an indigenous water researcher at that time so I had to find a new job um, the second dream job was uh, leading an Aboriginal water unit in New South Wales. And, you know, I wrote another paper in 2019 looking at, at, at that, you know, at that uh, experience. And what it was was a change in leadership. And that leadership come in to destroy us, but also other other planning um, and, and policy, policy policy areas because, you know, they did what they, the excuse they used was that Aboriginal, we as a team, the Aboriginal Water Initiative, um, did such a good job in make, making the department culturally aware. Um, so we, we had cultural awareness training for the whole department that they didn't need Aboriginal people anymore. You know, that was the gist of the letter from the secretary. So, you know, things like that, the cycle of change, you know, the, the National Water Initiative is up for a refresh at the moment. You know, it was signed off in 2004 and that was the first document at a national level that had recognised Indigenous people. Um and I think that is is up for a refresh. It can do better, but the challenge was that the National Water Commission was the was the agency, the independent agency that had the opportunity to to, to make sure the National Water Initiative was being implemented at a national level. And then under that, you know, there was a First Peoples Water Engagement Council that gave advice to the National Water Commission. And you know, the most well, most of the time, the, the National Water Commission took that advice. But the problem was a new government come in and got rid of the National Water Commission. And obviously that got rid of us as the First People's Water Engagement Council. So, you know, these sort of cycles come and go, but we have to be resilient enough to survive those cycles. And, you know, Victoria at the moment has an Aboriginal water unit. They have, you know, the, the current government and the previous government, which was this, the same government, they, they'd promised 9.5 million, I think, from memory, to Indigenous water, the Aboriginal water opportunities that was building a, an Aboriginal water unit and also Aboriginal water policy and also Aboriginal water ownership. And so if the government changed at the last election, that that program could have been scrapped straight away. You know, so there's continuity is good, but the challenge is, is surviving that. But also we thought in New South Wales, we thought we were entrenched enough we're in legislation, we're in gazetted water sharing plans, floodplain management plans, where we're key to giving advice on licensing and things like that. So we thought we were well enough entrenched in the system so they were cornered that so they couldn't get rid of us. But magic red pen come out and we were gone. How do you deal with those so many ups and downs and so like how yeah, how do you mentally cope with oh, all of that? <laughs> Some days are tough. Um <laughs> I think it's. I think resilience is built in. You know, survival is built in to 
uh, that's what what I believe. You know, survival is built into Aboriginal people. You know, we will survive. We survived thousands of generations of dry continents. We've survived sea level rise. We've survived volcanism um, of volcanic activity. And, you know, there are, those stories exist. And, and, you know, when the sea level rose in Port Phillip Bay um, in Melbourne, uh, there were sto- Aboriginal stories around that, you know. So, that, so they've survived droughts. They've survived floods. And I think that that being built into us, there is a resilience already building, and now we're surviving government policy. And I think it's a, it's a new it's a new new enemy at the moment. But I think for me, having an impact, I've been lucky enough to 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 build on a good education, and I'm now in a position where I can actually give people a voice. You know, so a lot of the times through government, through research, I'm the only Aboriginal person in the room sometimes. And you've got to be a voice. I can't, I'm not in a position to represent every Aboriginal person. And I'd be, you know, I'd be kicked out of town if I did that. You know, my work in Aboriginal affairs would be done. I cannot represent, I cannot be a voice for Aboriginal people Australia-wide or Torres Strait Islander people. I have to be, I have to represent my own mob, um, Kimberley mob. And I have to have approval to say certain things, you know, like for me in groundwater, a lot of groundwater sites in my country are women's sites. So I need to be careful of, of, of that, you know, so I can't say too much or give away certain information because potentially I could be, I'd be getting a slap up the head from the aunties, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> or a thong from 50 <laughs> metres. <laughs> um, I think the, the, the challenge for me, or my career sort of, I don't know what's the word when you're, this is the way I think and feel. My, my own way of doing is, is that I have to have an impact wherever I am. And if I start becoming, or if, as soon as I start becoming impacted by the process, it's time for me to close that door. Or if doors get closed, I always know another one will open. And I think that's, you've got to have that positivity there to, to know that opportunities will come. But you, you need to be, you need to have that, experience and knowledge behind you to, to have that confidence as well. And, you know, like when New South Wales did that to us in late 2016-17 when they've got, got rid of the Aboriginal Water Initiative, you know, there was there was staff that were regionally based in towns that weren't, you know, that, that don't really need water experts. And I had 10 Aboriginal staff and one non-Indigenous staff in my team that were around the around the whole state and they engaged in water and you know i i couldn't promise them employment forever you know that was my dream job as leading that team but i had to i saw it coming and i had to let the team know that this is coming and i'm i had to actually leave before that that decision was made i knew it was coming but i, I gave them the ups that you know, there's there's not going to be an Aboriginal water initiative in this new structure, and that that was true. You know, in early 2017, they brought out the structure. They'd reduced the number of full-time Aboriginal staff, which was against the the Aboriginal employment strategy of the state. Um, and also, they'd what they'd done was created three positions in three different teams. And you know that that's the old divide and conquer uh, scenario that they'd they'd reduced the number of Aboriginal employees, 
they'd moved them all into different units and they went to re-advertise all those positions. So, you know, one of the 10 team members got, got one of those jobs and, you know, I, I'd moved on at that stage to, to do it, to do the PhD at uni Canberra. So, you know, most of the staff that I know of have positions, but the, the challenge was at that time that, you know, they, if they were in a regional location, that regional location wasn't looking for a water expert. And, you know, that was really tough. So, but, you know, I had to, th throughout the, the five years, you know, we, we'd, we'd made sure that we had a strong training budget and they could get as, as much training as, as and advance in, the, in that area that they could. So, you know, I, those sort of things are hard to take. And, you know, speaking about it is like therapy, <laughs> let's say. Um, but also it's, 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 you gotta, you gotta make them accountable as well. Some of those people that made those decisions, you know, part of my role is, is bringing out that, that voice and that, that, those, those, those things we had into, into the foray. And, you know, I think, um, you know, that they, they will be accountable one day, but you know, what they did, um, and, and those decisions are happening all the time and they, ha they happen in, in every sector, no doubt. And, you know, a good program from a previous government is a bad program for a new government, um, or a new leadership. So it's, you know, it's unfortunate, but for me, I've always talked about, or I've always built myself on having an impact sort of mentioned before that if I'm having an impact, I'm doing good. And if I'm not making a difference, then it's time to move on. Um, and I think, you know, if you, if, and it's unfortunate, you know, you, you shouldn't have to do that. And there, there are people that survive these, these changes. And, you know, a lot of the times they aren't Aboriginal people that survive these, these changes in government or, or program shifts or defunding. So we hear it all the time and, you know, that's, it's frustrating, but it, it, it's, I think it's built in for us to just be resilient enough to just bounce back. And I want to go back to something you said earlier about Australia being the driest country on earth um, and just the, this idea that, you know, we already lack water and now climate change is obviously such a huge issue for this continent. I'm wondering, um, are you optimistic for Australia's future given, you know, everything that we've kind of been speaking about? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I, you know, I think about my kids' generation and, you know, what are they going to grow up with? What are we going to leave them? And I think that's the legacy issue is that, you know, do we dig more holes in the ground to pull out coal to actually heat up the atmosphere? I I think that is probably a no-brainer. And, and unfortunately, the way we're heading, um, we're going to see more and more impact, especially for Indigenous people. Um, they're going to – some of these places are going to get drier and hotter. The people in the Torres Strait are going to be – they're already at the forefront of impacts of climate change. You know, we've already had – uh, a, a mammal extinction from climate change uh, a small rodent you know so there's these little things are starting to happen and you know people in the south pacific and um, let's say the torres strait as well and coastal regions they're going to be the first to feel the brunt and you know that 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 sea rising um, it's already happening they're losing country uh, the the tides are getting bigger and then you've got two mega droughts one after the other in southeastern australia um, and the, you know they're calling them the it was the worst on record, and now the this, the next one was the worst on record. So I think you know with the hottest hottest year on record, it's just, this is the new normal, and it's unknown what that new normal is. And I think Aboriginal people have something to offer that new normal because of the 
the way we've survived on the on this dry continent, driest inhabited continent on Earth. Um, and you know, I think there's something to provide. And a lot of a lot of the times you you um, you see climate change scenarios and the future of you know what what can we do to mitigate? How can we adapt? And I think the aspect of indigenous knowledge adapting and mitigating for thousands of generations to to the changes in country are already there. So, you know, I think that's the same for water management is, is that, you know, they've, they've, they have the stories that talk about, you know, the water holes that are deep, you know, they call them refugia to these days of the ones where, you know, the, the native fish and um, aquatic species living in these dry times. But when you have the whole river dry, what happens then? You know, that that's been happening Unfortunately, in, in too often, and you know, you, you see the way we manage water under these scenarios, and climate change is not part of these scenarios. And you know, these these droughts aren't included in, in current day modelling. And you know, you'll find that rivers will stop flowing and dry up quicker and faster into the future, no doubt. Uh, I have no doubt about that. And what happens is that rules that are set up to manage and share water let's say in New South Wales, in an unregulated system, they can actually pump water that's in low flow. So when the river's at its lowest flow, people can still pump. Um, that's a rule that was brought in um, by a previous water minister. And, you know, that, that's the problem is that that's the water that's supposed to keep the river alive. But, you know, the, the, these guys that are pumping that water aren't breaking the law. They're, they're just complying with the rules. And that's they're the rules potentially they lobbied for, and that's unfortunate. Um, and that that those sort of things need to be changed. It's not about the dollar because water is a commodity. Unfortunately, it shouldn't be about the dollar. It's about the value of that water for the for for life. You know, if without that old saying is without water you die, and I suppose country is dying a lot more often because water is mismanaged. Well, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast with me today, Bradley. I really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at australiangeographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, you'll find a special subscription offer. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening. Until next time.